Okay, we pick up then in James chapter 1. You all should have a handout. And this week is a slightly different format in your handout than previous weeks. We're still going to look at the layout of the passage, and then we're just going to work through uh, the several verses and hoping to connect those themes and, or note those themes and connect them together as we go through. But first, let's go ahead and read the passage. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man, observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. All right, so as we read through here, we see um, certain themes being repeated, and we see these verses going together. There is a logical coherence to them, but commentators have struggled. Um, you know, what is the unifying principle of these verses? But it's pretty clear they go together and it's not just a random collection of, of sentences, right? They, they have a, a logical um, internal relationship. And as we go through here verse by verse, I think we'll sort of see how they're connected. But looking first at the structure of the passage, James begins with a so then in verse 19. This connects it back to the material in verses 12 through 18. And the last thing he said is, of his own will, God brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So what he says now in, in verse 19 relies on that. So then, right? because of the fact that God brought us forth by his word, here's what we should do. There's what we'll call an entreaty. This is his address to them. My beloved brethren. Here again, recall that James is addressing Christians, right? This is important for us to keep in mind. He's addressing those whom he considers to be his brethren. Also, sometimes when we have to tell someone a hard truth, we speak to them in this way, right? We entreat them. He's not speaking to them as enemies or as estranged, but rather as familiar and beloved. This is followed by the first of several exhortations, and that's just a command. Let every man be, and this has three parts, three things that we're to do, <coughs> swift to hear, slow to speak, 
and slow to wrath. And then he gives a reason. For the wrath of God does not produce the righteousness of God. And then verse 21 picks up with an inference, that is a conclusion drawn from verse 19. There's a therefore. Because of that, we must receive the implanted word. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning, Jan. Good morning, Ed. Good morning. You can close it. Thank you. All right, so we see the exhortation. The second exhortation of the passage is in verse 21, in the middle of it there, 21c, receive the implanted word. Notice that this word he mentions here, we'll talk about this more in a moment, but this word refers back to that same word by which God brought us forth in verse 18, right? And in verse 18 we read that God brought us forth by the word of truth. And now he's telling us to receive that implanted word. Then there's an exhortation again in verse 22, but be doers of the word. And this brings about a contrast of not being hearers only, with the result from that being deceiving yourselves. In other words, if you are a hearer of the word who does not do it, the result of that is self-deception. Okay? And then he explains that with two conditions and a comparison. And we will look at these more closely in verse 23 when we get there. Notice then that verse 23 is connected to verse 24 with a 4. That means he's going to explain what he just said. There's a description of a man going and looking in the mirror. And then that's related in verse 25 to the man looking into the word of God. He calls it here the perfect law of liberty. And then notice in 25e, there's a result. This one will be blessed in what he does. We could contrast that with the result in 22c, where the man who hears but does not do deceives himself. And here in 25, the man who hears and does is blessed. Verse 26 brings up a condition. Now, verses 26 and 27 seem almost to be changing the subject. But what I think we'll see as we go through here is that they are, in fact, applications of what he started out with, right? He, he said for every one of us to be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, and then told us to receive the word, and then tells us to do the word. Verses 26 and 27 give us specific applications, examples of what it means to follow those exhortations, okay? Um, we'll look at these verses individually, but before we do that, are there any comments or questions on the, the layout of the passage itself? All right. Um, all right, then let's look at the, these individual verses. So verse 19, as we said, follows as a conclusion. The so then indicates that. Remember that 
previously, James said that God is not the source of evil, right? When we're tempted, we mustn't say it's God who tempts us, but rather God gives good things. God never gives evil. He gives good things. So that therefore comes, especially when you're suffering trials and temptations, we especially at this time need to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. And you can imagine why this is the case. When we're facing a trial or when we're being tempted, what are the things that, what are the ways we could respond? One is we don't want to hear anything. I don't want to hear about it. Don't give me Bible verses. Don't give me counsel. Don't give me instruction, right? I've, I've already heard Romans chapter 8. Don't tell me about God working all things together for my good. By the way, I often hear Christians counsel one another. Now is not the time to remind people of God's sovereignty. I think James is saying that's not true. Now is the time for you to be swift to hear. You may not like what God's word has to say to you in your trial, but God's word is there for you in your trial. I will never forget, there's a man in our presbytery, a minister, you all know of him, I'm sure, uh, Jack Kinnear. Dr. Jack Kinnear, he's also a professor at the seminary. And in my time here, he had no less than three bouts with cancer. And I believe he had cancer prior to my coming here. And so he suffered greatly, and he would get to a place where he was healed up, right, having gone through the chemotherapy, he's free from cancer, and then six months later, it would come back. And he kept getting dragged back down, and each time being very near death, right? It was terminal cancer. And one of the things, at the end of one of the last bouts of cancer, he came up before the presbytery and he spoke, and he said, I want to remind you um, of how important it was for me, and how important it is for you, because this was important for me, that people would come to me, and they, I know they were hesitant to say it, but finally someone said to me, God works all things for good for those who love him. And I needed to hear that. And he said, now I'm a minister, I've been a Christian a long time, I teach in a seminary, obviously I know that verse, and I know that to be true, but I needed to be reminded of it when I was in the midst of my sorrow, when I was in the midst of my trials, and that was a mature response, right? He was showing what a, how a mature Christian responds to trials. And he was swift to hear the word of God. And that's a, a challenge for us, right? Sometimes we, and we liken it to um, Job's friends, right? Because they came and, and said all of these things to him, we say, well, we mustn't be like Job's comforters. And that's true. But do you notice the difference with Job's comforters is they did not come to merely share with him the word of God. What did they do? They came and accused him, right? There is a difference. There's a difference between merely accusing someone and sharing with someone the truths of Scripture. Now, sometimes they go hand in hand, but there is a difference. Mr. Maurer, I think I saw your hand. Yeah, yes. Um, a former pastor of ours was talking once about uh, someone that he knew. Um, I, I don't know if he uh, just knew this person or visited this person, uh, maybe both, but th this person had lost a loved one um, in a tragic accident. And a um, the pastor who had visited uh, her said, this was not God's will. And this woman said to um, our former pastor, I didn't want to hear that. I mean, how, what good did that do me? You know, uh, if it's not God's will, then this just 
happened, then you know, th th then then it's uh, everything is uh, confusion. He and you know, uh, our pastor straightened her out on that that it was God's will, not not that he delighted in that. Yeah, right. But that he was sovereign over. Right, right. Yes, yes, very good. Um, so, I, I I heard a man once talk about a, a funeral. Um, and there were actually two ministers who preached at a funeral, which, by the way, I think that's probably a bad idea. But sometimes, you know how it is. I think this happens with weddings and funerals and things like that. Sometimes there's different interests in the family, and, and maybe they were a longtime member at two different churches. Whatever the circumstances were, there were two funeral messages. And one of them was similar to what you described, Don, where... Um, the man preached that this was not God's will and God was as surprised by this as anyone and God was as displeased and all of these things. And the second one said the complete opposite. Wow. Right? Um, so how, how would you like to be at a funeral and hear two competing messages, both of them claiming to be based upon the word of God, right? Especially that, if you're an unbeliever. Yes, yes. Um, and, and so that's certainly um, a problem. Yeah, Mr. Timberlake. You know... If you believe God is sovereign, that solves the problem. Yes. <clears throat> yes, it does. Not only is God sovereign, but he's good. Right? So he, he is the first cause of everything. But he's also good. Right? He's good. He doesn't do wrong things. And that's what one of the things that we need to be swift to hear. Right? Um, now, <clears throat> when we are telling one another truths in the midst of someone's sorrow or suffering, there's some guidelines to think about. Number one, is it true? Right? It has to be like the, the, the pastor who was saying that God did not will for someone to die, he's not speaking the truth. So that excludes it immediately. The other is, is it necessary? Right? There are sometimes there's a particular truth that... It's true, but it's actually not relevant or necessary at that time, okay? And then another is, is it helpful? Is it edifying, right? Does it, does it address the issue? Does it build up the Christian faith? Does it honor and glorify God? You know, there are certain truths. It's like, suppose you were coming to talk to me, and you're like, um, you know, you, you have got to stop snorting cocaine. Okay, that's true. <laughs> and moreover, your face is ugly. <laughs> also true, but not necessary or edifying, right? Do you, do you see how you can have something be true, but not necessary or edifying? And so we ourselves want to be swift to hear, but notice slow to speak is the second thing. Slow to speak. Okay, what is our tendency when we are undergoing trials or when we are tempted, well, we get angry and we speak. We lash out. We may grumble against God. You know, that is, remember the, the commendation of Job is he did not sin in his words. In all of this, he did not sin with his mouth. He was slow to speak. Now, he had things to say. I mean, if you read the book of Job, Job spoke a lot. And, and if you read, it's like, wow, he's, he's verging like he's getting very close to what I would call uh, blasphemy, some of the things, or you know, he's he's saying things, but but God says no. Job did not sin with his mouth, because I think Job was slow to speak. He measured his words. He was careful. He didn't speak beyond what he knew. And another way to be slow to speak. Think of remember Jack the, and he oh, yeah. he vowed 
to sacrifice his daughter if he would have victory. Well, he vowed to sacrifice whatever came next through the door. Yeah. And that happened yeah. to be his daughter. Okay, that's an instance of not being slow to speak. See, being slow to speak doesn't only refer to talking to each other. It refers to talking to God. Um, how many of us, you know, Luther, St. Anne, if you save me, I'll become a monk. <laughs> that was not being slow to speak, right? He made a rash vow. But look what happened. Yeah, right? <laughs> well, God, God uses, right? God uses even our sins to bring about good, right? That's, that's something we've... But sometimes, um, for Christians, we may be suffering, and we may make a rash vow to God. Even if we don't verbalize it, if we don't vocalize it out loud, we may say, God, if you will um, do this for me, then I will do this, right? And I'm not saying we mustn't ever make a vow to God, but we want to be slow to speak, right? Because God requires that if we make a vow to him, that we pay it. And so we don't want to make a rash vow. You know, God, if you uh, give me this job, I will donate this much money. That, that's fine. But make sure before you tell God you're going to do something like that, you really mean to, you really want to. Also, don't just make vows to God in order to get out of trouble, right? <laughs> oh, Lord, if you let me survive this, I'll go back to church, <laughs> right? Or I'll never do that again. But make sure, again, it's not rash, okay? So that's part of being slow to speak. But also being slow to speak is grumbling, complaining. These are the kinds of things that we do when we're under trial or being tempted to sin. And then, of course, slow to wrath. Uh, wrath is an outburst of anger or even settled anger and bitterness. There's a number of Proverbs um, that have this same kind of wisdom but talking about the wrath of man, the anger of man, how it doesn't accomplish what we see in verse 20, does not accomplish the desired outcome of our trials, which is the righteousness of God. Now remember, we talked about God in trials is seeking to build in us patience, perseverance, right? He wants us to be complete, lacking nothing, and he wants us to be tested and approved. So that's another way of saying these things are there to produce in us the righteousness of God. Um, so it starts, it starts out, we should be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath because the opposite of all those things, which we could call the wrath of man, does not produce the desired outcome, the righteousness of God. Now the righteousness spoken of here is not that imputed righteousness for instance, that we talk about in Romans 3, right? Where we are justified by the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, meaning reckoned. Um, remember that in justification, our character, our behavior doesn't actually change, right? That's a legal declaration by God, and it doesn't actually affect our person in terms of righteousness. We don't become personally righteous by justification. That's a reckoning that's accounting but James here is not talking about that he's talking about personal character and conduct that are pleasing to God right he's and we'll see as as we're going through he's not remember who he's talking to again my beloved brethren right he's not telling them to get justified again he's he's urging them towards righteous conduct what we would call sanctification 
All right, so these refer, uh, let's look for instance, we see Jesus speaking in a similar way in Matthew 5, which you will not be surprised to know that, G, that James regularly quotes or alludes to the words of Jesus. But let's look at some examples in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. In verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This one's especially clear that Jesus is not talking about imputed righteousness. He's talking about personal righteousness. Why? Because the people who are um, doing it are being persecuted for it, right? So they're being persecuted for their words, for their behaviors, for their refraining from certain behaviors. <laughs> They're doing things that cause those who hate God to persecute them. Uh, let's see, there's some other, um, Matthew 5, verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And then one more in chapter 6 of Matthew, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Remember, this is in the context of him telling his disciples not to worry, saying that God will supply their needs, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then these things, these needs you have, they'll be supplied for you. So Jesus, as well as James, is here speaking again of what we'll call personal righteousness, the, the character and conduct of God's people who have already been saved, right? We've already been forgiven our sins. We're already justified. We're counted righteous. And now, until we go home to the Lord, we work at our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us. All right? Um, so this is God's design in our trials, that we may be perfected and approved. Remember, we saw that in, in verse 4 of chapter 1. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And then again in verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Remember that word approved is the idea of being tested and found genuine. Okay? Um, obstinance, that is stubbornness, refuse, stiff-neckedness, refusal to hear the word, um, putting, you know, putting our fingers in our ears metaphorically towards God, um, hasty speech, and outbursts of anger are all contrary to the virtue of patience, which James uh, talked about in uh, verses 3 and 4, and he'll talk about it again in chapter 5, verse 11. That's one of the things that the Christian is to be seeking. And, and remember, the way that we gain patience is God works it in us through trials. Right? It's, it's kind of like, I, I want to have big muscles. I don't get them without exercising. Right? That's, if you want your patience to grow, you don't get it without enduring trials and facing temptations, right? Mm -hmm. You can't you can't get there. It's not um, merely um, endowed to us, 
it got, takes place through the process of difficulty. All right, any questions so far? All right, let's continue into verse 21. We see it is an inference from verse 20. So since the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God, we should receive the word of God, which does produce the righteousness of God, right? That's the, that's the thing that needs to be taking place here, is that um, we've been given the implanted word. God brought us forth by it. And when we face a trial, rather than respond with the things that don't produce righteousness, we must dig into and, and bear fruit according to the thing that does produce the righteousness of God. And that's the implanted word. Um, this corresponds to the word of truth back in verse 18. And it is also called the perfect law of liberty in verse 25. James calls it implanted because it is by his word that God brought us forth, right? Um, you see a uh, parallel here to the parable of the soils, right? Remember, Jesus talked about the word of God being like a seed that is planted, and the different soils bear different fruit. Uh, so it's the same word, this implanted word, but the different soils that bring forth different fruit. And so James is saying, you've been given the word. It's planted in you. That's how God brought you forth, right? So now, when you suffer, when you are tempted, receive that word. Now, it's, it's in one sense, the word was implanted in us, right? That's how we were born again. The, the word of God worked in us by the spirit of God, um, made us to be Christian. But... We have to continually receive that word. Right? It's the same word, but it is at once implanted in us, but then also continually ministered to us. Um, so then you start thinking about the parable of the soils and how there are things that hinder it, right? You know, stony ground, thistles and thorns, all of these kinds of hard ground, all of these different things that can be impediments to it. And that's why James says that we have to lay aside the filthiness and abundant wickedness. Um, and these are all things that uh, prevent the word from bearing fruit in us, right? These things that distract, maybe they are the cares of the world, maybe they are love for some sin, maybe it's some, something else, but these things distract us and keep us from bearing the kind of fruit that God wants from us in the implantation of his word. Uh, let's, I want to show you a parallel in 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, 1 Peter, Peter, remember we noticed before that Peter and James have a lot of similarities, and here's another one. Peter says, Therefore, laying all side, aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. This is very similar to James's words here. He says, therefore, laying aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, receive the implanted word with meekness, which is able to 
save your souls. All right, so you see the uh, manner in which we're to receive the word is meekness. That means humbly, right? We always have to be in a position of humility as it regards God, right? Um, being uh, what Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's what it means. We are going to God as needy, as humble, as receiving from him a good thing. And Peter likens it to milk, like a newborn baby desiring the pure milk of the word. See, we're receiving it with meekness. Number one, because we know we need it. Number two, because we know who God is and who we are, right? And so we're not haughty towards God. We're not seeking to correct him or, or um, putting ourselves over the word of God. Right? We see that sometimes um, uh, in, scholar, in Bible scholarship, right? They're, they're weighing the word of God, trying to determine whether this is true or that is true, and they're, they're pointing out difficulties and all of these things. And what they're doing is not receiving the word with meekness, right? They're, they're putting themselves over the word, and they're judging it. But biblically, um, God tells us the word judges us, not the other way around. Right? And that sort of sets the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. The non-Christian is antagonistic to God's words, however they come, whether in the Bible or in a sermon or in our quiet time, whatever it is, right? But the Christian is humble towards the word of God. He receives it like a baby wanting milk. Um, you know, it, when a baby refuses to feed, that's a problem, right? Um, because ordinarily speaking, that milk is his nourishment and it's good for him. Well, so too for Christians. If we re refuse the word of God, that's, that's a problem because to us it is nourishment and, and is good for us. Let's see. Um, notice here in verse 21 the power of the word, how, how God uses it. It is able to save our souls. Now, salvation referenced here doesn't refer only to our initial conversion, right? Mm. Because look at, James says, my beloved brothers, and then he says, the word of God is able to save your souls. So he's not talking only about initial conversion, although the word is able to do that. But for Christians, we must understand that we don't have yet all of our salvation, right? So James is talking about the whole of our salvation, all the way through our lives, the growing in holiness, to um, being glorified in heaven, to receiving our resurrected bodies, right? There's a whole um, large uh, scope to salvation. Some of it is yet future for us. So, you know, and you can talk of, yeah, one second, Mr. Kaufman, thank you. Well, um, we can speak of our salvation in three tenses, right? We were saved, when we believed. We are saved right now. God is keeping us saved. We will be saved yet in the future when the Lord Jesus comes and delivers us from um, all sin and, and death and hell and everything else. Mr. Kaufman. Right. And it was going to say, because I've heard some people on this specific passage talk about it, because am I correct in saying James is not talking about obviously this idea of you know, there's an initial justification 
but then depending on how your sanctification goes affects this other right. final justification. Right. We're talking here about the outworking of what's already been done yeah, yeah, yeah. through your life. Yeah. And yeah. And it, it just because you're justified by grace through faith, you still are in that position of, of growing in grace, growing in your sanctification, yeah. which is evidences your salvation throughout your life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that that justification is still the justification. Yeah. Yeah. All the way through. Yeah. Uh, Denny, did you have something you wanted to? Yeah. Yeah. There's there's a word right now that many of us do not like. It's called progressive. Yes. Right? Yes. But when applied to sanctification. <coughs> yes. It's a great progressive sanctification. Yes. You're How right. are we progressing? Yeah. Our sanctification. Yeah. <coughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So let's let's take the um the categories used. <coughs> in our Westminster standards, okay? So we have um, election, which is a, a cause to our salvation, right? God of his own will chooses for himself certain vessels to make them vessels of honor. And those whom he has chosen, those whom he has elected, he calls, right? Calling then refers to two things, the, the inward calling, sometimes called effectual calling, and the outward calling. The outward calling is what happens by the word. We hear a preacher, or we read the Bible, or we read a gospel tract. Somehow God outwardly calls us. That's combined with the work of the Spirit in our hearts. That's inward calling. Together they are effectual. right? They're, they make us um, born again, and we convert. Okay, That's, that's when we uh, repent of our sins and believe. After we believe, we are justified. That means that God forgives all of our sins and that he gives us life. Okay? When God justifies us, he then adopts us, meaning he makes us his own children because we are now forgiven our sins and we are now cleansed by the blood of Christ. We become God's very own children. Having been justified and adopted comes sanctification. Sanctification is God's further sanctifying us, which, as Denny mentioned, is progressive. Right Now, I want to pause for just a moment here. And everything from calling to justification to adoption to sanctification could be described as salvation, right? Because they're all yeah. parts of it. And that sanctification then continues, right? As long as we are here in the body... That continues. And then we have something called glorification. Now, before we get to glorification, there's a process called perseverance or perseverance. If we think of perseverance, that's from our side. In other words, we hang on, we endure, we keep believing, we keep following the Lord. That's our perseverance. From God's side, it's perseverance. Yeah. God preserves us. He keeps us. He holds on to us. Jesus says, no one can snatch them from my hand, right? So God preserves us. That brings us to glorification. That's when we die and we go to be with the Lord, right? And that's when finally all sin is destroyed. <clears throat> finally all of the promises are brought forward. Now, one thing I would say is even after our death and going to be with the Lord in spirit, we are awaiting one more aspect of salvation, 
that is the resurrection of our bodies, and our open acquittal or vindication before the whole world, in which God says, this is my saint, right? This well done, good and faithful servant, this is my holy servant. And that will take place at the resurrection and the great judgment. So you see, salvation then has, has many aspects to it, and, and they all can be considered salvation. So to Mr. Kaufman's question about justification, justification in the forensic sense, being counted righteousness, being counted righteous, that's a one-time thing, right? God reckons righteousness to us from Christ because of his sacrifice for us through the instrument of faith only. That's a one-time thing. And that produces adoption. Having become children of God, we don't um, uh, we don't lose that status, right? And now God deals with us as his children. And I think this is one of the more helpful ways to, to think of your sanctification and the commands to you in Scripture, as you are now a child in God's household. You don't get thrown out if you sin, right? Uh, if my kids disobey me, I don't throw them out of the house immediately, right? That's not what happens. I discipline them, I correct them, I instruct them, but they're my children, right? They're, so all of my interaction with them is as a father to a child, and that is you as Christians. Yes, God will chastise you. Yes, God will discipline you. Yes, God is going to give you commands and things to do. He's going to give you work to do, right? But it's as his child, as distinguished from the world who are his enemies. Now, God deals differently with his enemies than he does his children, doesn't he? God is kind to everyone, but he has a special relationship with his children. And that is what you are, being justified, you're adopted. All right? All right, let's see how we're... Okay, let's see. Um, all right, so there are those circumstances that must accompany our receiving on the word. That is, laying aside the filthiness and the wickedness. The receiving of the word properly requires repentance, right? And the metaphor here that James uses is like that of taking off dirty garments. Okay, laying aside is like taking off muddy or dirty clothes. And so the notion is, is that in day-to-day -day life, um, we accumulate dirty clothes. It happens because, one, we have indwelling sin. Two, we live in a sinful environment. Right? We live in the world. There's still sin. And this will be brought up again at the end of the passage about keeping ourselves unspotted from the world. So the notion is, is that regularly we get dirt on our garments. Okay? These garments are metaphors for our holiness, okay? for our, our person, our character. We get sin on them. We get stains on them. We need to, when we receive the word, also take off that filthiness because that will hinder um, the work of the word in us. And it, it, none of us is ever perfectly consistent, right? <clears throat> Free from sin. But we will notice that participation in sin will hinder the work of the word, right? If, if we are hiding sin or if we're refusing to repent of a sin, we can't expect to be growing in holiness. You see, we, we can't expect the word to have its work done in us when we're counteracting it um, the whole while. All right, we, 
We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. Uh, that, who can name that song? Mr. Mauer, do you know that one? No, I don't. Uh, Eastbound and Down. <laughs> All right, I think it was from Smokey and the Bandit, right? Oh, okay. All right, speaking of a stain from the world. Okay. Um, <laughs> All right, so verse 22, then we're exhorted to be doers of that word. All right. Um, now, here's the other thing. I just want you to note that the, the contrast that, that will take place is it's not wrong to hear the word, okay? It is right to hear the word, but it is possible to hear the word, but not receive it and do it. There's a, there's a three steps that James mentions here. Hearing, receiving, doing, okay? So it's not wrong to hear it, but if we only hear it, and don't receive it and do it, then that's a problem. Um, and remember that the result of this is being self-deceived. I've talked with a number of people who um, were in churches and heard the word, but were not um, certain that they were saved. Or later on, something happened and like, I just got saved. Well, part of it was they didn't receive and do the word, Right? Um, they, they had been hearing it and maybe thinking everything was okay, but there was something missing, right? And we, they were self-deceived, right? We can be deceived so that we're hearing the word, um, but if we're not actually living according to it, we understand that that's an instance of being deceived. All right? Verse 23 explains that exhortation with kind of an illustration and comparison to man in the mirror. Another song, that one's Michael Jackson. Uh, <laughs> Don't be worldly. <laughs> uh, the contrast here then is between the one who hears and the does and the one who hears only. Now, don't let the metaphor of the mirror, it's not, it, it seems difficult, but it's really not. We're all familiar with it. You need to take a good look in the mirror, right? What does that mean? You need self-reflection, right? You need to look at yourself and see whether you're being true. That's the basic idea here. And here's the picture is that we look in the mirror, usually when we look in the mirror, we see, like I get up in the morning and like, oh, how much damage was done this time, right? <laughs> and we look, and let's suppose you looked in the mirror and you saw a black spot on your face. All right, now, what would be the point of looking in the mirror and observing that spot? So you can remove it, okay? But now imagine a man, he goes, and he looks in the mirror and he sees the black spot on his face and then he turns away and he forgets what his face looks like. That's sort of silly, isn't it? What's the point of going and looking in the mirror? By the way, he might come back momentarily and look in the mirror again and then he goes away and he forgets. Okay, James is saying when you hear the word of God, it's going to reveal spots on you. It's going to reveal things that need to be dealt with. But how silly is it to go and look at it and have it be revealed to you, but then not deal with it. And that's what it, the man who hears the word but doesn't do it, that's what he's doing. Is he's, he's hearing it, he's like, yep, there's a spot, or I've got you know, lipstick over here, or whatever it is, right? Or my hair's out of place. Okay, spiritually, when you hear the word, it's going to reveal things. It's going to show us our faults. It's going to show us things that we need to do, or things we need to stop doing. But don't be like the man who looks in the mirror and goes away and forgets all about it. Because that's not going to profit you, is it? All right? 
Um, verse 24 explains that illustration. Verse 25 then is a contrast. You see the contrast between the hearer and the doer. And the principal difference between them is that the man who is a doer, he continues, does not forget. Okay, so he, he continues, meaning um, he, when he walks away from the mirror, um, he hasn't forgotten. But even more than that, he looks intently into it. Okay, he continues. He lingers, looks intently into it, lets it reveal the problem, and then does the corresponding work. Um, note again that the, the Word of God is called the perfect law of liberty. All right, uh, verses 26 and 27 are an application of all of those exhortations. I mean, James talks about religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father. The basic, the principal idea here is that religion, our religion, can um, be nullified, right? Be made nothing by bad behavior. Um, we can't expect to have a good relationship with God if we are doing things that are contradicting that relationship, right? We, and oftentimes the word religion, that the word religion James uses here is um, used specifically with regard to ceremonies and worship. Um, so, and I'm, I'm sure all of you can look at, have seen examples of this where there are people who will go to a religious service and worship, and everything in that worship is in order. And it's all very um, appropriate and done well, and it's, you know, lovely, but then they don't have a life that matches that. That's the kind of thing James is talking about here, right? Um, not Now, the, the wrong conclusion would be to say that um, it doesn't matter how we worship God. That does matter, right, like in terms of, you know, public worship. That does matter. But James here is getting at the idea that you can't merely think that you are right with God because you have good ceremonies. Okay? Um, he, we won't look at these for right now. Um, in fact, I think what we'll do is we'll, we'll take a moment next time to, to finish off verses 26 and 27. Um, they're really too important to just completely rush past and We'll stop here for now, and Lord willing, we'll get to look at those next week. All right, let me pray. Father, um, thank you again for your word, the word by which you brought us forth, the word that is able to save us. We ask, O oh God, that we would respond rightly to your word, hearing it, receiving it, and doing it. We, ask, we know, God, that we can't do these things without your help, without the work of God, the Holy Spirit. And so we ask that you would help us in these things. And even, Lord, make us more conformed to your word and ready and willing um, and desiring to do it. Thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.